I do appreciate Carl's prayer a moment ago for, for David and I. Just to give you guys an update, David is uh, having, a, having a hard time regaining his strength after the really aggressive treatments that doctors put him through over the last year for his cancer. So you can pray for him. It's just it's hard to bounce back after what your body goes through with cancer. Uh, for myself, many of you have been asking. I haven't yet heard from the doctor what he wants to do. He tells me that it's probably surgery coming up later this semester, but I uh, would certainly appreciate you guys' prayers. I would love to be spared more surgery. But um, thank you very much for your prayers. Speaking of prayer, we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at the prayers of Jesus, learning to pray like Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous prayers, if not the most famous prayer in Scripture. We're going to study it in detail. We're going to really dig into it. What I'd like to do this week in preparation for that is is do a little foundation work, make some observations, not of the specific prayers of Jesus, of the words that he prayed, but I want us to observe this morning the prayer life of Jesus his attitudes and actions and habits concerning prayer. That's what I want to look at. We're not going to look at his words. We're going to look at his actions, his attitude in prayer. Um, Let me say right from the beginning, the goal in looking at the prayer life of Jesus is not to heap guilt upon ourselves. It would be very easy for us to flip through the Bible and look at the example of the prayer life of Jesus and leave here feeling super guilty. That's not the goal. My my hope is not that you wake up at 4 a.m. to pray tomorrow morning because you feel super guilty. I don't want you to pray out of obligation. That's not the goal. The goal this morning as we look at the prayer life of Jesus is to be reminded from him how powerful and amazing prayer is. My hope is that if we look at how Jesus viewed prayer, that we would desire to spend more time in it, that we would want to be in prayer. I don't think the problem is that we're not as mature as Jesus. The problem is we don't understand like he did how awesome prayer is. So I want us to dig into the life of Jesus. I want to make four observations this morning about the prayer life of Jesus. So let's just jump right in here. Let's observe four things about Jesus's prayer life. First thing that I saw as I went through the prayer life of Jesus this week is that Jesus, time and time again, often let prayer trump sleep in his life. Let me give you an example. Mark 1.35, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now let me be honest with you, I don't like this verse. I really, really do not like this verse because it is so convicting to me. I am not a morning person. Every other week I have elder meeting. I have to wake up at 545. Some of you are laughing. You wake up earlier than that. But 545 is a hateful time of the day to me. I do not like it. It's still dark outside. It is unnatural to get up at 545 before the sun has gotten up. I hate it. I don't like this. This is super convicting to me. But maybe you look at this and you say, okay, well, Jesus was a morning person. Just really like waking up early to go pray. Well, uh, problem is we also have Matthew 14. After a super long day of ministry, healing people, teaching people, they needed the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. What does Jesus do? After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Skip a verse. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. That is the disciples walking on the sea. Now, interesting thing here is we have a time, a couple times. He starts in the evening and then he appears to finish praying and go to meet the disciples. Fourth watch of the night. That's three to six a.m. 
Okay, so Jesus is also a night person. (laughs) He prays till somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. But as if that isn't convicting enough, Luke chapter 6, right before Jesus appoints his disciples, he has this huge decision. Who who is he going to appoint to be his disciples? It was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. So it's not that Jesus is a morning person or a night person. Jesus is simply a person who believes in the power of prayer. He believes that prayer is more powerful, it is more valuable than sleep. Now, it's very interesting. Let's notice a couple things about who this man is we're talking about. Number one, uh, Jesus knows exactly how much our bodies need sleep. Remember, Jesus, Jesus is creator. He made all of life. He put our bodies together. He understands better than we do how much the human body needs sleep. He knows we'll shut down without sleep. And remember, Jesus was subject to that same limitation while he was on earth. He chose to submit himself to our needs, to our limitations. Jesus knew exactly how badly his body needed sleep. He understood it perfectly. And yet often, time and time again, Jesus chose to sacrifice sleep for the sake of prayer. As valuable as sleep was to him, he knew prayer was better. Second thing to notice about who this guy is, we're talking about Jesus. Remember, um, Jesus is God. Jesus is second member of the Trinity. He's perfect. He has at his disposal limitless power. He is infinitely wise. And yet he spends all this time in prayer. Well, let's contrast that with me. I'm a creature. I'm limited. I am fallen. I've struggled with sin since the day I was born. I am in much more desperate need of God's help than Jesus was. And yet I spend so much less time in it than he did. He spent hours in prayer. He often sacrificed sleep for the sake of prayer. I'm not so good at that. In fact, I often let the opposite happen. I trump prayer for the sake of sleep. I'll get in bed at night and I, I, I really, I intend to pray. I have good intentions. I get in bed and I start praying, Lord, Thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for, thank you for your son. Uh, Lord, please help, us, please help us to rest well. Oh, oh L- Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for, and then boom, I'm out. I'm out. That's it. That's like every night, my prayer life. I make it through about 30 seconds. I pray for the same thing over and over again. Thank you for this day, because that's as far as I get. And then it's game over. I've let sleep trump prayer again. How amazing is it that Jesus, who knows how badly we need sleep, who is God in human flesh, he often sacrificed sleep for the sake of prayer. Now again, this isn't meant to be guilt for us. I don't want you to wake up tomorrow at 4 a.m. and pray out of guilt or out of obligation. That's not what this is about. This observation is a reminder to us of how awesome prayer is. If Jesus, who understood how much our bodies need sleep and who was God in human flesh, if he often gave up sleep for the sake of prayer and sleep is awesome stuff, take it from a father of three-month-old twins, sleep is awesome, don't get enough. As awesome as sleep is, prayer is better. Prayer is more powerful. Prayer is more life-giving. Prayer is more refreshing even than sleep. That's a helpful reminder to us. That's how Jesus viewed prayer. Not an obligation, a privilege, a source of limitless power. It's more valuable than sleep. Second observation uh, that I see as we walk through the prayer life of Jesus is that Jesus loved to pray in the wilderness. A couple of the verses that we just looked at a moment ago, it talks about Jesus withdrawing to the wilderness or up on a mountain alone. That wasn't just something he did periodically. Luke chapter 5 verse 16 says Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. 
Now, in the Gospels, we often have Jesus praying in public. He did it with his disciples. He did it with crowds. Jesus often prayed in public. And yet, when he really wanted to pray, when he had some big decision he faced, when he was coming off a difficult day of ministry, Jesus' preference was to withdraw into the wilderness and pray. Now, wilderness here doesn't mean desert. Jesus isn't like going out in the Sahara or something like that. Uh, Back in ancient Israel, you had towns where people lived and there was a lot of distance between towns. You didn't have to walk very long to get away from everyone. That was the advantage back in the ancient world. It was easy to get in the wilderness. Walk 20 minutes any direction and you're alone. You can get alone with God. That's, that's hard for us. I would have to walk a lot more than 20 minutes to get even out of my neighborhood, much less my suburb. I'd have to walk a very long time to get alone. So it's not practical for us to get into the wilderness quite like Jesus did, but we can still follow his example. For me, my wilderness, the places I go to do what Jesus did, are, there's a couple of them that I commonly go to. Number one, the, the swing on my back porch. And number two, the shower. The shower for me is probably my best wilderness spot. The reason that both of these qualify as wilderness is because they're free of distractions. No phone calls on the back porch or in the shower. I am alone. It is relatively quiet. I am free of the stress of the day. No one's going to come looking for me. There's nothing I need to do. I can simply be alone with the Lord. Let me challenge you this week. My, My application from this point would be, number one, find your wilderness. Do you have that spot where you go? That place where you go to be alone with the Lord, free of distraction like Jesus did. That's what prayer requires. You've got to be able to get out into your wilderness, to get alone with the Lord. Now, for some of you, that's going to be an outdoor place. It's going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be going for a jog. It's going to be a drive in the country. Something like that is your wilderness. For others of you, it'll be a place in your house. I had a friend in college who her wilderness spot was her closet. She lived with a bunch of loud roommates. When she wanted to spend time with the Lord, she'd just shut her in herself in her closet. That was perfect. Turn off the lights. It's dark. It's quiet. She can go before the Lord in prayer. So this week, find your wilderness spot. If you haven't already, find the places where you can go and be alone with the Lord and then go there often. This was the habit of Jesus. He knew he needed to be in the wilderness free of distraction where he could pursue the Lord, where he could focus on prayer. Now let me challenge you. Once you've found your wilderness, once you go to your wilderness, you're going to need to protect your wilderness. You're going to need to protect your wilderness spot. You're going to need to protect it primarily from these guys. Cell phones. We live in a world of 24-7 email, phone calls, text messages, Facebook updates, YouTube videos. We are constantly bombarded by digital media. And for many of us, these little devices that are meant to help us be productive have actually become our master's. We've become enslaved to these. We can't unplug for these. It's like a ball and chain strapped to our hips. It's always there, dragging us down, holding us, keeping us distracted, constantly distracted. There's, there's people I'll watch who they can't go more than two minutes without getting their phone, some, a text message or an email on their phone. How can you even think if you're getting interrupted every two minutes? Now, the great news about these little devices, I have checked and all of them come with one of these. There's an off button. Every cell phone I've ever seen, every PDA, every laptop has an off button. You can turn it off. Let me challenge you to do that. Go to your wilderness spot and hit the little red button. 
Turn the phone off, not just on silent, but turn it off and spend time that's undistracted with the Lord. We are such distracted people. We live in a world of constant distraction. You've got to remove yourself from that. You can't pray when you're distracted. Prayer takes discipline. It takes focus. Ryan Pale is our director of community outreach here at Grace Bible Church. He runs a program called Youth Impact. And they have college volunteer leaders. And and Ryan took these college volunteer leaders on a retreat earlier this semester. And he came back and shared a story. During this retreat, he wanted the leaders to get alone with the Lord for a few hours in the morning. Just spend quality time with the Lord. Problem was, these students were constantly texting and getting Facebook updates on their phone. So Ryan told them at the beginning of the three hours, okay folks, uh, don't just turn your phone on silent, turn it off. Now, for many of them, it was the first time they would be turning their phone off in weeks, if not months. It freaked them out. They could not imagine turning their phones off. They could not imagine disconnecting from from what's going on, from the latest news alerts, from the latest emails, text messages, all these things. They were scared to turn their phones off. They couldn't imagine it. But after much weeping and gnashing of teeth, they submitted, they shut them off. They went off and spent time in prayer with the Lord. And what happened? Three hours later, they come back and say, Ryan, can we keep going? Ryan, can I, can I leave my phone off? Can we continue to spend time with the Lord? Because, man, I, I haven't had time like this in years. What they found was that wilderness time with the Lord, it's not an obligation, it's not a burden, it's refreshing, it's life-giving, it is food for the soul. They got away from the distraction of life. It's tragic to me that I see so many students constantly wearing earbuds. Constantly receiving music, updates, news, phone calls, everything coming in their head. Where's the time to be with the Lord? So I challenge you, find your wilderness space, go to your wilderness, and protect your wilderness. Spend undistracted time with the Lord. That's the only way to pray like Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He took off into the wilderness day after day to spend time with his Father because he knew that's where life is found. That's the second observation I think we find in the prayer life of Jesus. Third observation, Jesus persevered in prayer. I want you to to look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start with looking at Jesus' teaching about perseverance in prayer. We're going to look at a parable. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Now he, that is Jesus was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? Can I let, let me explain this parable for a second. This is not a comparison between God and a wicked judge. They're, they're nothing alike. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus' point is, if an unrighteous, wicked, uncaring judge can be won over by the persistent pleading of a widow, then how much more will our loving, compassionate, caring, listening father be won over by our repeated requests? Jesus is teaching us this parable for a purpose. Notice again, verse 1, he tells it to them so that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. This parable is meant to teach us about the value of perseverance. We should persevere in prayer. 
For most of us, we've had times in our lives, maybe regular times in our lives, where we've wondered, Lord, why have you not given me what I've prayed for? Why have you not given me what I've asked for? There's many possible reasons that Scripture gives us, but one of the reasons is you haven't persevered in prayer. God wants us to continually take our requests to him over and over and over again. He wants us to persevere in prayer. Now, not not only did Jesus teach about that, but he modeled that. I turn to the book of Matthew, towards the end of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew 26, and one of Jesus' more famous prayers, this is the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was arrested, tried, convicted, and executed. Jesus spends time in prayer with the Father. I don't want to focus so much on the words of Jesus, but how he went about praying. Look with me, Matthew 26, starting in verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Three times Jesus goes to the Lord and prays for the same thing. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. Jesus goes before the Father over and over. Again, the, the, the text here, I don't think it's, Jesus is just praying this one sentence. There's quite a bit of time that passes each time. I think he's pouring out this request over and over and over and over and then gets up, checks on the disciples. They fall asleep again, wake them up, go back, pray. Over and over and over again, Jesus continually repeats this prayer. This is not meaningless repetition. This is heartfelt, desperate, honest, fervent repetition as Jesus goes before the Father in prayer. Now, what's interesting is that God the Father did not choose to say yes to this prayer. God didn't spare Jesus of the cross. Just because we pray for something over and over doesn't mean God will give it to us. He's not a slot machine. You hit the lever enough and you get what you're asking for. But what Jesus is showing us is that prayer requires perseverance. Jesus is demonstrating to us a perseverant prayer life. Now, this prayer is actually really freeing to me. This is really good news to me. What Jesus is showing me is that when I have desperate need of something, when I am really discouraged, when I am really broken down, when I am really needy, I can go before the Lord and simply repeat my prayer request over and over again. I don't have to explain myself to the Lord. I don't have to come up with theologically eloquent prose to offer to the Lord. I can just get on my knees and honestly ask, God, please take care of me. God, please take care of me. God, please take care of me. I can just utter my need before the Lord over and over again. There's nothing magical in it. It's simple. It's honest. It requires repetition. It's okay. Great news is that this is the kind of prayer that God loves. Not some theologically eloquent prayer fit for a book, but simple, honest prayer uttered over and over again by someone who is in desperate need. It's a prayer of the widow. It's a prayer of Jesus. That's the prayer that God loves to hear, prayer that perseveres, that puts our requests at the feet of the Lord over and over again. It's a third observation I see in the prayer life of Jesus. Fourth thing that I see in the prayer life of Jesus is that he prayed as if eternity 
were at stake. There's a couple verses that appear in John chapter 6 that are theologically magnificent verses. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Jesus is telling us that in the process of salvation, God the Father is sovereign. He draws people to Jesus. The only way for a person to be saved is if the Father chooses him and draws him to Jesus, to know Jesus, to believe the gospel. And if the Father chooses you, if he draws you, you will be saved. It will happen. You will come to know Jesus as your Savior. This is the doctrine we call election. Now, the problem is, in the course of church history, many well-meaning believers have looked intently at the doctrine of election and have drawn the logical conclusion. Well, if God is sovereign over salvation, if he saves those whom he chooses, and once he chooses you, you can't help but be saved, then why bother praying for anyone? Well, let me tell you, that that is a logical conclusion. That is logical. Unfortunately, it's not biblical. I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 36. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. So Jesus teaches that God is sovereign in salvation, that God chooses, that God elects, that all whom God elects will be saved. And yet look at Jesus' statement in verse 36 of Matthew 9. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into his harvest. In this prayer, in this request, Jesus speaks as if the salvation of these people is dependent upon our faithfulness to pray. He sees these people in need. He sees these people who need the gospel. They need the good news of who God is. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, just rest in the sovereignty of God? No, he says, pray. Pray like it matters. Pray fervently. It's interesting. He uses the verb beseech. It means to plead, to beg, beg God for workers to go out and share the gospel with these people. Jesus speaks as if he believes that that heaven and hell are at stake in our prayers. That the eternal destiny of these people who are in need of the gospel hinges upon our faithfulness to pray. So is God the Father sovereign in salvation or do my prayers determine the salvation of people? Both, both. The Bible reveals to us that God is sovereign and our prayers are essential. I can't explain to you how both those are true. Doesn't make logical sense, but guess what? I have a finite mind. I am limited. I am not God. The mystery of prayer is too big for me. I can't wrap my mind around it. I think when I get to heaven, I'll always struggle with this because I'm finite. It makes perfect sense in God's mind, not mine. But I take it on faith. I take it on faith because Jesus preached both. That God is absolutely sovereign. We are in his hands. And yet our prayers really do matter. God has ordained that our prayers are the means by which men and women come to know Jesus as their savior. When I came on staff here at Grace Bible Church, I worked in the college ministry with a woman named Renee Davis, now Renee Meyer. She lives up in Nebraska. Shortly after Renee became a believer, she began to pray for her dad's salvation. And, and Renee persevered in that prayer. Uh, day after day, month after month, year after year, she prayed for her dad's salvation. She asked many of us on staff to be praying regularly for her dad's salvation. Year after year, no change with her dad. 
Not nowhere close to the Lord. And yet, Renee didn't give up hope. She continued to pray for him over and over and over again. Years passed, I believe decades passed. Finally, Renee's engaged. She's getting ready to be married. She's going to move far away from her parents. And just like a couple months before her wedding, her dad comes and says, Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, I accepted Jesus as my Savior the other day. Years of praying, no results to be seen. Renee perseveres, and her dad accepts the gospel. So let me ask you. What was going on in her dad's salvation? Was her dad saved because God elected him from eternity past for salvation? Yes. Was he saved because Renee prayed for him day after day for years and decades? Yes. Both are true. I can't explain to you how. I just know they are because Jesus tells us. God is sovereign and yet our prayers matter. Our prayers are the means by which men and women come to know Jesus as their savior. Our prayers are the means by which the kingdom of God expands. The point is don't give up praying for the lost. Pray as if eternity is on the line because it is. Pray for those you know who don't yet know Jesus. Friends, relatives, pray for other things that seem irretractable. Pray that broken relationships would be restored. Pray that people would be removed from addiction. Pray that Physical healing would come upon those who are sick. Pray for people because your prayers matter. Yes, God is sovereign, but he hears us and prayers really do change things for the better. Prayer is incredibly powerful stuff. In his plan and his creation of this universe, God knit prayer into it by which prayer becomes the means by which his will is accomplished. Prayer really does matter. It makes an eternal difference. Now to that end, where I'd like us to end this morning is somewhere special. I want us as a congregation to pray for Leslie and Carl Shirk. The Shirks have been members here of Grace Bible Church for a long time, but they are getting ready to head to Swaziland in Africa. They're going to work in a ministry there to orphans who've been left orphaned by the AIDS virus at a place called Balimbu. I hope I pronounced that right. Yes, Carl's saying yes. So I'd like to start by showing you a video about what the Shirks are going to be doing. And then Brad Evans is going to come up and he's going to interview them. And then we as a congregation are going to pray for them. Why are we praying for them? Is it because that's just what you do at the end of a church service? No, we're praying for them because we believe that heaven and hell are on the line. That eternal destinies of children who are in desperate need are at stake. That God has ordained prayer to be the means by which these children would come to know Jesus as their Savior and be healed and be walking with him. So let's see what the shirks are going to be up to this year.